Welcome to our Owen podcast, a podcast for the Ontario Animal Health Network. I'm Dr. Cynthia Miltenberg, co-lead of the Owen Bovine Network. Today I have Dr. Catherine Reif joining me. Dr. Reif is an assistant professor of diagnostic medicine and pathobiology at Kansas State University, and her research revolves around tick and tick-borne pathogens with an emphasis on anaplasmosis. And Dr. Reif is here with me today to discuss it, bovine anaplasmosis. Welcome, Dr. Reif, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm hoping you can maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what kind of research and work you do. Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor at, at K-State in the College of Vet Med here. Um, some people may find it uh, maybe not their favorite topics, but I, I really love to talk about ticks and tick-borne diseases. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, also bovine anaplasmosis is a particular, a particularly favorite tick-borne disease and um, the primary focus of my lab's research. Um, and with regard to that research, we have the opportunity uh, and, and really the privilege to be able to work with a lot of producers, stakeholders, as well as a variety of colleagues, um, both here in Kansas and, and really around the country. So I love it. <laughs> Oh, that's super. Thank you. Well, Canadian veterinarians may be less familiar with anaplasmosis because we historically haven't had the disease in Ontario. We have had sporadic cases, of course, in Canada. So I'm wondering if you can start by describing the presentation of the disease in cattle and, and how it's transmitted. Sure. So bovine anaplasmosis is caused by a bacterial or more specifically a rickettsial pathogen uh, called anaplasma marginale. This pathogen is an obligate intracellular pathogen. Uh, and basically what that means is that it has to live within the context of a host cell. So in cattle, it lives within the red blood cells. Cattle typically uh, become infected with anaplasma marginally through the bite of an infected tick. So ticks are the natural biological vector for this particular pathogen. And within the tick, obviously the bacteria can survive as, as well within the gut epithelium and, and salivary gland cells um, of that vector species. So traditionally, animals become infected through the bite of an infected tick. Um, it takes about anywhere from four to eight weeks, depending on the infection load that the tick delivered uh, for an animal to begin developing clinical signs associated with uh, bovine anaplasmosis. And the hallmark of, of those clinical signs uh, for this disease really include acute anemia and acute fever. A lot of times, the first time a producer knows that they have an issue with anaplas is when a cow drops dead. And that may sound dramatic, but um, since this is a pathogen that infects the red blood cells, we don't have a lot of outward signs that, hey, this cow is infected, uh, be on the lookout, low stress for this animal, etc. Um, but basically, the, the, the hallmark clinical sign would, would be that acute anemia. Um, as animal's spleen is recognizing infected red blood cells as it's passing through and then eliminating those infected red blood cells. And if you eliminate too many of them, you become super anemic. And we frequently see cows during that clinical phase, um, maybe they'll lose 75% of their red blood cells. So it can be quite dramatic, uh, just 
Imagine if you're a blood donor and maybe you feel a little woozy after donating a pint of blood. Imagine losing 75% of your red blood cells. Yes, that is a, a significant portion. So would all animals be equally affected by anaplasma or does it differ between young animals and older animals? All cattle are susceptible to infection, but we typically see clinical signs of disease more commonly in adult animals over the age of two or three um, compared with younger animals. Uh, younger animals, it's hypothesized, have a greater uh, potential to regenerate those red blood cells um, so they don't develop as, as severe of disease, although they can definitely still become infected. But we see that uh, more severe acute anemia with a greater potential for death um, in, in adult animals. So once an animal is infected, um, what happens next? They Some of them die, but some of them don't. <laughs> so definitely the majority of cattle that become infected do not die, which is great. Um, but they do not, most of them do not actually clear the pathogen. So this is a tricky uh, bacterial pathogen that actually constantly is changing the proteins on its surface to evade the cow's immune system. Um, and so we see cows that stay persistently infected, typically for the duration of their life. And if we track that infection level with a diagnostic test like a molecular PCR assay, um, we can see the bacterial levels of, of anaplasma vary over time. And what we see is these waves of low levels of, of bacteremia. And those different waves signify different variants that are emerging or escaping from that cow's immune system. Um, and we definitely hear a lot about breakout variants now with, with COVID. And, and so that's one of the strategies that anaplasma typically uses to maintain its infection uh, in, in cattle. Okay. So once an animal is infected, will they recover? Will they look normal again? Or how does that look as these variants are changing? Sure. As long as, an, as, long as a cow um, has a healthy immune system and is, and is otherwise healthy, uh, their, their individual immune system is more than capable of keeping anaplasma in, in check. And so they don't exhibit any overt outward signs of, of clinical anaplasmosis. Most people wouldn't even know that their cow is even infected. Um, we can see recru recrudescent clinical disease in animals that become uh, immunosuppressed, even if it's just a bit transiently so, uh, maybe during stressful times of the production season, um, breeding or calving, uh, et cetera, we can start running into some potential problems um, then when, when they become a little bit immunocompromised. So it sounds to me like, you know, the endemic areas of anaplasmosis um, might have kind of some differences from the non-endemic areas in terms of the, the presentation. Just generally, like what areas of North America are most affected um, with anaplasmosis and, and has that been changing? So I don't know so much about Canada, but in the U.S., um, anaplasma has been identified in uh, all 48 continental states. 
but the areas that it's most endemic in would be um, the southeast region of, of the country, um, kind of the Great Plains area, and then there's pockets up in the, the northwest where this disease also occurs. Um, but we move cattle around so much that really we can uh, find it in, in most states without too much effort. Um, but in Kansas, where I am, about 50% of our beef cattle herds are actively infected with this pathogen. Uh, so it's quite significant. In, in Arkansas, it's upwards of about 90% of their beef cattle herds are, are actively infected. Um, what kind of dictates where the disease is, is more common uh, has to do with the type of operations. This is a disease that's most significant for cow-calf operations, maybe some seed stock operations as, as well, but uh, primarily mostly cow-calf. Um, and, uh, you know, whether or not producers are contributing inadvertently to the spread or the transmission of the pathogen it itself through reuse of uh, needles or other blood contaminated equipment, or um, if it's an area that has uh, the tick um, that's capable of transmitting the uh, this pathogen present. So in North America, uh, that tick is going to be Dermacenter species. Um, here in the U.S., pretty much the whole eastern half of the U.S. is going to be the American dog tick, Dermacenter variabilis, and then up in the Pacific Northwest, more Dermacenter andersoni, the Rocky Mountain wood tick. But ticks don't respect borders, and you definitely have both of those tick species in Canada as well. Um, and with the warming climate trend, it's uh, predicted that these tick species will continue expanding uh, their northward range really well into to Canada. So this may be a disease that you guys start seeing a little bit more commonly. That's really interesting. Now, now I traditionally think of cattle as being at risk of this disease. Are there any other livestock species? And furthermore, what about people? Sure, that's a great question. Um, so cattle are, so with regard to anaplasma marginale, which is the agent we're talking about here today. Um, cattle are definitely the most susceptible uh, host species for this pathogen. Um, other species that can become infected include bison. So if you have some bison producers, they may uh, run into a little bit of trouble with this, although bison don't seem to develop as severe of, of clinical disease or uh, it's, it's not really well reported on. Um, there are some other uh, cervid species like reindeer can become infected, but importantly, white-tailed deer cannot, I'll repeat, cannot become infected. That would be really terrible if they, they could, but it's primarily going to be cattle that are susceptible to infection and disease and a few other select uh, ruminant species. Um, people cannot become infected, so that's really great news, but you may be saying, well, I hear about anaplasma and people sometimes, and that's a different anaplasma. That's anaplasma phagocytophilum, um, and that's a species that does infect people and dogs and horses and a variety of other wildlife critters, um, but that is a different species than the one we're talking about today. 
that's helpful because I think there is sometimes some confusion with that just general term of anaplasmosis. So yep. <laughs> thank you for cl clearing that up. Um, we mentioned, I just want to go back. You were talking about cattle being infected for life. And we sometimes hear of this term as being a carrier. Can you kind of describe what that means and its impact for controlling the disease? Sure. So a carrier with regard to anaplasmosis just means that that cattle maintains infection. And, and I, I mentioned before how this bacteria kind of has a cyclical concentration in, in the cow at these low levels. It's, it's really like an arms race between the cow's immune system and the pathogen's ability to escape that immune system. So this is a very active infection process. It's not just sequestered in I don't know, some part of the cow's body waiting for that cow to become sick and, and recrudesce. But um, uh, carriers are, are actively in, infected and they can then serve as a reservoir um, for transmission of the pathogen to naive animals, either through uh, the bite of a competent arthropod vector, such as a tick, as we talked about before, um, or transmission via uh, in blood and blood contaminated instruments or potentially fly mouthparts. What's important to note here is that if it's transmitted by the tick, the tick can actually the the bacteria can actually replicate in the tick. So um, a carrier animal is going to have typically a low a much lower level of uh, the pathogen in circulation in its blood. Um, but that doesn't matter if a, if it's being transmitted by a tick because it's concentration or its number will only increase in, in that tick and then the tick will go and bite another naive uh, cow, let's say, and uh, transmit transmit the pathogen. Um, but if it is going to be transmitted by like blood contaminated instruments, uh, the bacteria can't actually replicate um, either like in flies, for example, or on the surface of needles or dehorners. So as soon as that red blood cell gets busted open, that bacteria is essentially dead. And that's one of the things we really try to, um, you know, get across to cattle producers is that really this is a this is definitely a manageable disease um, when it comes to like reducing uh, your likelihood of transmitting it um, just by disinfecting equipment that may become contaminated with blood. So for their car those carriers, are there, are there any options to treat them or resolve that infection in any way? So historically, there's been um, a couple different protocols suggested uh, using Tet injectable tetracycline antimicrobials like oxytetracycline uh, to eliminate infection, but um, practically it's it's unlikely uh, with the strains that are circulating nowadays that um, you can reliably use those same protocols, which I'll also mention are not approved indications of these drugs um, to, to clear infection. Um, other other folks may try to use in-feed uh, chlorotetracycline um, medicated products uh, and those will in theory help suppress the bacterial concentration in, in the cow but it doesn't lead to elimination of infection either. Um, you know I think over the past 
couple decades. These, this bacteria has been exposed to antibiotics for so long that it's perhaps becoming a little resistant or more tolerant to the approved dosages, uh, which are definitely very highly regulated, especially for the in-feed antimicrobials. Um, so it's very tricky, and I'd say there's no reliable protocol to actually eliminate carrier infection. It's something we want to try to develop, but um, we haven't found a reliable protocol yet. Fair enough. That's that's good to know. So if a veterinarian is suspicious of anaplasmosis, what are the diagnostic options that they can use to either rule that in or out? Sure. So if they're suspicious of it, um, one of the most common diagnostic strategies is, is going to be a serological test, like a, a, a C. ELISA. That's the most common and typically the most economical test that a producer will uh, tend to use. Um, remember that the uh, serological test is, is looking for uh, antibody to a particular, the, the presence of antibody to a particular pathogen rather than the pathogen itself or the bacteria itself. Um, but because anaplasma causes persistent infection in, in animals, it's a pretty reasonable assumption that if an animal is seropositive, it's probably also likely PCR positive as well. So that PCR test is a molecular assay, uh, which is another, di another diagnostic test option that a producer can elect to use or a veterinarian can elect to use um, that actually tries to identify the DNA or the, the genetic material of the pathogen directly. So if you see its DNA there, there's a really good likelihood that that animal is definitely or actively infected. Um, those just tend to be quite a bit more expensive, maybe four to five times as expensive as a serologic test. So that's why producers tend to use um, serology. Right. That's good to understand, especially for um, our situation where we would have fewer um, cases and a different prevalence in the population. So thank you. Um, so like on that note, in an area like Ontario where anaplasmosis is not endemic, what, what are the greatest risks for this disease to become established in our non-endemic population? Yep. So previously, I, I know that this was a, a bit of, this was a regulated, um, regulated disease? Is, is that the right way to say it? Sure. Uh, so there was, there was some degree of, of testing done and, and now that's no longer the case. Um, so factors that could help influence its establishment in, in some of these areas would include presence of uh, the tick vector um, that could transmit it and I'm pretty sure in Ontario you have the American dog tick up there. Maybe you call it the Canadian dog tick up there. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think we still give it to you guys, but we okay, <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, movement of of cattle uh, between, let's say, endemic areas in in the U.S. into non-endemic areas like Ontario, uh, especially if there isn't some you know, screening done or, or surveillance done by the producer that's procuring the, the animal. Um, and then just use of production practices that would 
increase the likelihood of um, transmission through blood contaminated instruments. Uh, so producers that use single-use needles or make sure that they disinfect um, definitely lower the, their chances and, and the risk for anaplasmosis transmission. But if you have infected ticks or if you have um, persistently infected or carrier animals in, in your herd uh, and they're on a pasture that has a competent tick vector on it, then um, yeah, it, it, the, the tick can transmit it or I don't know how bad the fly situation is up there, um, but you know potentially lots of, of biting flies uh, in pretty significant numbers though to make that really efficient. Um, those would be factors that could make an area or uh, more endemic. Right. That's really interesting. You, you mentioned, you know, beef and pasture. And I'm just wondering, what is the risk really in maybe a dairy operation that's more of an um, indoor housing only situation? Is it a lot less? Yes, it would be uh, significantly less. So some of it has to do with just level of exposure to potential tick vectors. And so for animals that are housed indoors or housed on a dry lot where there's unlikely to be presence of uh, tick, you know, potential tick vectors, their risk is is quite low. Um, and I think in general, dairies are, uh, dairies are a little bit better about, you know, using needles only once and um, some of these other uh, protocols. Um, because that could that would be really the only significant likelihood to get transmission uh, between multiple animals would be um, through accidental or incidental transmission by blood contaminated instruments. Uh, but if that happens, you know it could be quite significant. Um, and then in dairy animals, it's been estimated even in some of these chronically infected uh, or persistently infected carriers. Um, that there is an impact on milk production. So uh, there was a study published quite a while ago, but that estimated a 30% decrease in uh, milk production um, in, in infected dairy animals. So um, it could be quite significant, but that transmission risk would be less about ticks and, and more about uh, the operation. Right. It sounds like there's very good reason to, you know, adhere to good biosecurity uh, principles to prevent the introduction of, of this disease into an operation. Um, so it sounds like, you know, if you're going to be purchasing animals from into your herd, it, it would make sense to, to screen for this test. As you said, for this disease, the test is not too expensive and it can easily be done with a blood sample. Yep. I, and I'd say most of the serologic-based tests, they they cost somewhere between uh, 6 and, and $12, depending on the testing center. So um, it's, it's, it's an expense, but it's not that insurmountable of a expense, especially if you want to potentially keep a bigger problem from potentially entering your herd. Right, right. And the other management um, or processes are, are good for 
protection against passing lots of other diseases around too. So they're not new and novel ideas. Right. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that wraps up our discussion today. Thanks so much, uh, Catherine, for joining us today and sharing your expertise. I've learned so much from you personally, and I'm I'm glad you're able to share it with our, our bovine veterinarians as well. Oh, my pleasure. And, you know, if anyone has any questions or wants to reach out, you know, please feel free to share my contact information. We will do that. Thank you so much. All right.